We're going to, yeah, they got the sound on now. Give me plenty because I yelled at my people all day yesterday, lost my voice. I was preaching on what every Christian should know about sin. It reminded me of the story about the little boy who came home from church. His dad asked, what did the preacher preach about? And the little boy said, sin. Father said, what did he have to say about it? The little boy said, I think he was against it. So... uh, Well, it's great to be with you after three years. It's been three years since I've been here before COVID. And uh, aren't you glad we're through that? Man, God's been good. God's been faithful. And you know, um, this church was doing great before COVID. God was using it in a powerful way, but I'm hearing reports that he's using it even greater after COVID. So God has you positioned here for a real purpose, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. It was the first day of spring training camp in 1961 when legendary coach Vince Lombardi stood before the Green Bay Packers And his first words were, holding up a pigskin, gentlemen, this is a football. You know, sometimes you have to go back to the basics, don't you? Especially when you're in a time of confusion. And we're living in an age right now when Christians are confused about the darkening, the decaying culture in which they live, and they're so concerned about it, legitimately concerned, but they're confused. Exactly what are we supposed to be doing right now in light of everything we see happening around us? Are we supposed to have 24-hour prayer vigils? Is that what we ought to do? Should we register people to vote? Should we stand on the street corner and hand out evangelistic tracts? Exactly what is a Christian supposed to be doing right now? Well, we're going to go back to the original, this is a football speech. It was given by our coach, our leader, Jesus Christ. And in his words that we're going to look at tonight, he tells us exactly what our role in this darkening and decaying culture is. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. This passage is known as the Sermon on the Mount. I have a new book coming out October 3rd on the Sermon on the Mount. It's called 18 Minutes with Jesus. I chose that title because the Sermon on the Mount can be read in 18 minutes. It's a brief sermon. Brother Charles, I have people ask me, why can't you preach like Jesus did in 18 minutes? You know, well, it takes us a little longer. But he packed a lot into 18 minutes. I subtitled the book, Straight Talk from the Savior about the things that matter most. In these short verses, he talks about our prayer life. He talks about managing our money. He talks about uh, worry. He talks about our sex life. He talks about everything that is important to us. And in Matthew 5, 13 through 16, he talks to us about our responsibility in this society in which God has placed us. Have you ever wondered why it is God didn't take you to heaven the moment he saved you? I mean, if God's goal is to have perfect fellowship with us, couldn't he have better fellowship with us if we were up there in heaven with him rather than down here on earth where we get tangled up in sin and distracted by so many things? Why did God leave us here on earth? It wasn't to fulfill our agenda. It's to fulfill his agenda. And he tells us exactly what that 
agenda is, and he uses, uses two images to tell us what we're supposed to be doing. First of all, in verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You know, in Jesus' day, salt was a very valuable commodity. The Greeks thought it was divine. The Romans had a saying that there's nothing more valuable than sun and salt. In fact, salt was so valuable that many times Roman soldiers would receive their wages in salt. The word salt in Latin is S-A-L, sal. We get our word salary from salt. It was that valuable of a commodity. And it was valuable for at least two reasons. One role of salt in Jesus' day was to enhance thirst. Uh, in the hot Middle Eastern climate in which Jesus lived, uh, people who were in an agricultural society, they would have to keep their animals well hydrated in that hot Palestinian sun. And they would do that by giving their animals salt tablets to create thirst so that they would be properly hydrated. 2,000 years later, we do the same thing. We give salt tablets to our animals. We call them football players. And we do that to make sure out in the hot Texas heat, they stay properly hydrated. So maybe Jesus is talking about that. He's saying, as my representatives, your job is to create spiritual thirst among unbelievers that will draw them to the water of life. You know, God wants us to do that. He wants us to create thirst in people. How do we do it? It can be something as simple as saying a prayer when you're out at a restaurant before you indulge in your meal. It's just a silent way of saying to those people around you, there is a God. There is somebody to whom we're accountable and we're thankful to. It may be something that simple. It may be... Uh, when somebody says to you, oh, I'm so worried about the economy, you know, and the rising inflation, and what are we going to do? And a way of saying, aren't you glad we have a God who's already given us so much, given us much more than we deserve? Or a God who is in control of the world situation and everything that's happening. Maybe that's what he's saying. Try to create spiritual thirst wherever you are. But I think the thing Jesus really had in mind here was another function of salt, and that was to serve as a preservative. You know, in the day before refrigerators, the only way you could preserve food was with salt. Salt was used to preserve meat. Now, salt, and this is so important, salt could only delay the decay of meat. It couldn't prevent the decay of meat. Eventually, the salt would break down, the meat would become rancid, and it would have to be thrown out. Salt was a preservative, not to prevent the decay of meat, but to delay the decay of, uh, decay of meat. And what Jesus is saying here is, the reason I have left you in this culture is to be a preservative to give this world a little bit longer until it collapses so that you can preach the gospel to as many people as possible. That's what he's talking about. You as Christians are restrainers of evil. You're not going to keep this nation or this world from collapsing, but you can delay the decay. Let me show you a passage that teaches that. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 6 and 7. Paul is talking about the Antichrist. 
And he says, and you know what restrains him, the Antichrist, now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains him will do so until he who is taken out of the way. Now, there are two he's in that passage. The first he is the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. But the second person is the restrainer, the one who is restraining, holding back evil until he is taken away. Who is that restrainer? It's the Holy Spirit of God. And specifically, it's the Holy Spirit of God in Christians, meaning you're the restrainer. You're the restrainer. I'm the restrainer. We're the ones who are pushing back against evil, the torrent of evil that will one day flood upon this world. When is that going to happen? At the rapture of the church. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ shall be raised first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, raptured, harpazo, to meet the Lord in the air. During the final seven years of earth's history, the earth is going to see what it's like without believers in the world, without the Holy Spirit in the world. There's going to be a torrent of evil like this world has never seen before. But right now, we are the restrainers. We're pushing back against that evil. Let me use this analogy. Just imagine, if you would, a huge dam that holds back millions and millions of gallons of water. And there's a little village right below the dam. And the townspeople look up and they notice the dam is starting to spring leaks. The bricks are beginning to crumble. So a group of townspeople go up to the dam and they push back against the dam. They push back against the dam while at the same time telling the townspeople to go below, to go find a place of safety. Why are they doing that? They know their work is futile. They know they're not going to be able to hold that dam back forever. They know it's destined for destruction, but they're trying to prevent and delay that deluge of water that will kill thousands of people in order to give people time to go find a place of safety. Now, that's what we're doing as Christians. God said, I left you here to be restrainers of evil, to be salt in this decaying world, to delay the collapse so that we have time to preach the gospel. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, wait a minute, pastor. Delay the destruction of this world? Don't you believe in the sovereignty of God? Don't you believe that God has written on his calendar the day of the earth's destruction in indelible ink and there's not one thing you can do to change the sovereign plan of God? I believe that until I read the Bible. Now, let me be clear. I do believe in the sovereignty of God, but I also believe we can make a difference. Because I turn back to the Old Testament book of Jonah, and I find that God made a declaration that he was going to utterly destroy the wicked city of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. But then God sent that reluctant prophet, Jonah, who began pre preaching, and people started turning to faith. And listen to what John, Jonah 3.10 says, And when God saw their deeds, that they had turned from their wicked way, then God relented. He repented concerning the calamity which he declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. God repented of his decision. How can an omnipotent, omniscient God change his mind? Brother Charles will be up here after the service to explain that to you. <laughs> it's beyond me. It's beyond my pay grade. I don't understand it. 
But here's what I do understand. I understand that one person can make a difference. Two people, three Christians can make a difference. Now, what's interesting, when you look at secular history, Nineveh was destroyed finally in 612. God did what he said he was going to do. But in a human way of understanding it, it God changed his mind because it's the actions of one righteous person. Right now, God is delaying his judgment, his final judgment on the world in order to give people an opportunity to trust in Christ. Isn't that what Peter said in 2 Peter 3? For the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not willing that any should perish. We have the ability not to prevent the ultimate decay, but to delay it by being salt. Now listen, there are three ways you can deal with this culture in which we're living right now. You can try to isolate yourself from the culture. Do you know that's what a lot of Christians do? They say, oh, we're going to get in our holy huddle and we're just going to huddle together and try to keep bad things from happening to us. We don't want to get contaminated by the world, so we're not going to get involved in the world. We're just going to stay in our holy huddle. Listen, for salt to be effective, it can't stay in the salt shaker. It has to get out of the salt shaker. It's got to penetrate the meat. Some people try to isolate themselves from the culture. You know, there are other Christians who go to the opposite extreme. They identify with the culture. They become like the culture. They adopt the world's value system, and they have a good reason, they say, for doing it. Oh, we're not going to speak out against homosexuality or transgenderism or abortion. Those issues are too controversial, and they just turn people off. We're just going to share the love of God and never say anything judgmental. Instead of influencing the world to become like Christ, the world influences them to become like Satan. You know what Jesus said about salt that loses its distinctive edge? It becomes worthless. It is thrown out. It is cast away. No, the answer is we're not to identify the world. We're not supposed to isolate ourselves from the world. We're supposed to influence the world. That's why God left us here, to influence the culture, to push back against evil wherever we see it. If you're in school, when your professor stands up or your teacher and says something that is completely antithetical to the teaching of the Word of God, you can't remain silent. You need to speak up. Not that you're going to change that teacher's mind, but you can influence other students who may not know the truth. When you're in a workplace that adopts ungodly procedures and policies, you need to say no, respectfully but forcefully. We're going to obey God rather than man. We need to speak up. When we go to a school board meeting, when we have a school board, like we do even all over Texas, trying to cram this ungodly transgender agenda down the throats of our students, we're going to say no to it. We're going to throw them out of office if they continue in this ungodly way. And yes, one way we influence the culture is in the voting booth, by the leaders we elect. Listen, leaders determine policies, and policies determine the moral and spiritual direction of this nation. Now, I'm not here to preach politics, but I'm going to tell you an absolute statement of fact with which both the left and the right, Democrats and Republicans, agree on. Here's something everyone agrees on, and that is this. 
had evangelical Christians not come together in 2016 and have voted for a pro-life president who is going to change the Supreme Court with three pro-life justices, if that person had not been elected by conservative Christians, Roe v. Wade would still be the law of the land today. The slaughter of 50 million unborn children would continue unabated. But it's because of Christians who said, we're not voting for a Sunday school teacher. We want to vote for somebody who will have the strength, the guts to push back against evil. It is why we were able to defeat that godless law. Now, God has called us as Christians to be salt, to be distinctive, to push back. And when we don't do that, we can see what happens by simply looking at history. Eighty-three years ago, Adolf Hitler rose to power. You know why? It was because of Christians, German Christians, who remained silent. Oh, there were a few exceptions, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but he was an outlier. Most of the German Christians remained silent, and they used their theology as an excuse. They said, oh, our job is not to get involved in politics. We're going to preach the gospel. Our job uh, is not to try to change leaders. We'll leave that up to God. We believe in the sovereignty of God, and on and on and on they went as a way of disguising their cowardice. What happened as a result of that? Six million Jews were incinerated in the death camps because Christians kept silent. My friend Erwin Lutzer recounts the testimony of a Christian who lived in Germany about the end result of Christian indifference. She said, I lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. I considered myself a Christian. We heard stories of what was happening to the Jews, but we tried to distance ourselves from it. Because what could anybody do to stop it? A railroad track ran behind our small church, and each Sunday morning we could hear the whistle in the distance and then the wheels coming over the tracks. We became disturbed when we heard the cries coming from the train as it passed by. We realized the train was carrying Jews like cattle in the cars. Week after week, the whistles would blow, we dreaded to hear the sound of those wheels because we knew that we would hear the cries of the Jews en route to the death camp. Their screams tormented us. We knew the time the train was coming, and when we heard the whistle blow, we began singing hymns. By the time the train came past our little church, we were singing at the top of our voices. If we heard the screams, we sang more loudly and soon we heard them no more. Years have passed, and no one talks about it anymore. But I still hear that train whistle in my sleep. God, forgive me. Forgive all of us who called ourselves Christians, yet did nothing to intervene. Ladies and gentlemen, we can be silent no longer. It is time for God's people to stand up to speak out and to push back against the evil society in which we live. God has called us to be that kind of salt. That's the word of Jesus. You are the salt of the earth. If we don't do it, who is going to do it? Listen to me. The reason we're trying to prevent the premature collapse of our country and our world is not to save America. Did you know there is no mandate in the Scripture anywhere for Christians to save America? That is not our job. Our commission is to save 
Americans from the coming judgment of God by introducing them to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the reason we get involved in culture, to have longer to share the gospel with as many people as possible. And that's why Jesus used that second metaphor. He said, not only are you to be salt, verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. You know, in John 9, 5, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. But now he says, you're the light of the world. We're not like Jesus in that we generate light. We're like the moon that reflects the light of the sun. But our goal is the same, to point people to faith in Jesus Christ. The only way to transform America is to transform the hearts of Americans. And only Jesus Christ can do that. God has given us the gospel to meet, preach to as many people as possible, as quickly as possible. Uh, Paul used that same imagery of light in Philippians chapter 2. If you think the times we're living in are bad, just consider the time in which Paul lived. Here's Paul. He's imprisoned. He's facing what could have been his death. And yet 19 times in the book of Philippians, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. You know why he was able to rejoice? Because he saw a great marketing opportunity. He knew the darker the world became, the brighter the light of Christ would shine. And the world was becoming dark. Remember who was on the throne of Rome when Paul was imprisoned? His name was Nero, the most evil emperor in the history of Rome. Nero is the one who took Christians and set them on fire, used them as human torches in his gardens. Now that's evil. And yet Paul said, I want you to rejoice with me right now. Why? Because there's never been a better time, he said, to preach the gospel. He said in Philippians 2, verses 15 and 16, And as for you, in the midst of this perverse and crooked generation, you're to be children of light, holding forth the word of life. You see, Paul understood a simple truth, and that is the darker the background, the brighter the light. The darker the background, the brighter the light. I had to learn that lesson the hard way a number of years ago. My youngest daughter came in to me while she was living at home. She was a teenager at the time. She said, uh, Dad, I've got some news I want to share with you. I've made a decision. I said, what is it? And she said, I decided to break up with my boyfriend. I stood up and said, hallelujah because he was the most worthless excuse for a boyfriend any parent has ever run into before. And I thought to myself, God answers prayer. Thank the Lord, literally, for what he did. And in a moment of unguarded ecstasy, I said to Dorothy, Dorothy, I'm so proud of you. I'm going to take you to the mall tomorrow and buy you whatever you want. <laughs> now, let me tell you what I had in mind when I said, whatever you want. I thought Charles would go to North Park there in Dallas and would go to Forever 21 and get one of those $20 or $30 dresses and would call it a day. That's not what Dorothy had in mind. We go to North Park the next day. We walk into the mall, and she leads me right past Forever 21 into a jewelry store, the most expensive jewelry store in North Park at the time. I started to get the shakes just going in there. 
she takes me up to the counter. We walk up to the jewelry counter, and uh, the attendant shows up in just a moment, and he looks at my daughter and said, it's good to see you again. <laughs> I knew I'd been had at this point. He said, would you like to look at the ring you were looking at yesterday? She said, yes. So I was really getting nervous now. He walks back, comes back with this little ring box. But before he opens the box, he takes a piece of black felt and he spreads it out on the plexiglass counter. And once he has that black felt laid out, he takes the ring and he drops it in the center of that black felt. And the contrast between the darkness of that felt and the brightness of that ring, it was bright enough to almost blind me to the price of the ring. Not quite, but it almost did. You see, he was an excellent salesman. He had one goal, and that was to sell that ring. And he understood the darker the background, the brighter the light. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you something. If your real goal in life right now is that of so many people, peace, prosperity, pleasure, the avoidance of any kind of pain, if that is your life purpose, then you have plenty to be fearful of. These are truly frightening days to live in. But if your goal is that of the Apostle Paul to win as many people to Christ as soon as you can, there has never been a better time to be alive and to be a Christian than right now. Because the darker, the darker this world becomes, the brighter the hope of Jesus Christ shines. The darker the background, the brighter the light. Now, I know some of you are probably thinking, this is the most schizophrenic sermon I have ever heard in my life. You've got us all confused, Pastor. What are we supposed to be doing? Are we supposed to be pushing back against evil, standing up against wickedness? Or are we supposed to share the gospel of eternal life to as many people as we can? Which is it? Well, what did Jesus say? Did he say, now, I want you to be the salt of the earth, the preservative, but if you're uncomfortable doing that, you just go out and share the gospel with other people. No. He didn't say you're the salt of the earth or you're the light of the world. He said you're the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world. Christians have to learn to do more than one thing at a time. We have to multitask. We have to be balanced. But when I say balance, please don't equate that word with passive. This is no time for God's people to be passive. I think of the words of William Watkins in his book, The New Absolutes. He said, it's time for Christians to reject the new tolerance and instead become a people marked by intolerance. Not an intolerance that unleashes hate upon people, but an intolerance that is unwilling to allow error to masquerade as truth any longer. An intolerance that is willing to stand up and call good, good, and wicked, wicked. May God give us the courage to do just that. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. I know I'm preaching to Christians here tonight, but let me just say, if you don't know Christ as Savior, the most important decision you could make tonight would be to trust in Him for the forgiveness of sin. 
For God so loved the world, because he loved you, he sent his only son, that whoever believes, trusting, clings to him, shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. Tonight, you can receive that unconditional gift of forgiveness. But for those of you who are believers tonight, let me just ask you, would you tonight say to God, God, whatever time I have left here on earth, give me the courage to be salt, to say no to sin, to push back against sin, first of all, starting in my own life, and then with those around me to push back, but at the same time, help me never to lose sight of the message and the mandate to share Christ with as many people as possible as quickly as possible. How many of you know right now can think of somebody in your family, in your work, in your school who needs to know Christ as Savior? Would you just raise your hand for a moment? The world is filled with people looking for hope. Would you tonight just simply pray, Lord, give me a clear opportunity to share Christ with that person who needs to know him. Father, thank you for saving us. Thank you for choosing us to be a part of your kingdom in reprise. Father, I thank you for Pastor Hunt, for his years of faithfulness to you. Thank you for what you're doing at Woodland Hills Baptist Church. And I pray that these next years will be her best years in fulfilling the Great Commission. And we look forward to that day when one day we'll be caught up to meet you in the air to live with you forever and ever. We pray all of these things in the saving name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. It's a privilege to be with you.